0: And welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher. This is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm sharing with you a conversation that I had with Aaron Dignan. He's from an organization called The Ready, where they reinvent your organization. This is all about work in an organization, work in a company, work in a business, work in a nonprofit, for that matter. Any group of people with a similar goal that are working towards something, end goal, a project, an achievement of a project. This is all about that. It's all about working together. It's about rethinking how we structure our organizations. It's all about challenging the assumptions of the organizational operating system. This was fascinating to me. And, you know, I'll give a little bit of a spoiler here. But when you think operating system, you think tech. When you think organism, you think living, breathing, organic matter. And so putting those together, modern day organizations are like cyborgs in a sense. This is a really fun conversation for me to have had with Aaron. I love talking about how things have always been a certain way, and yet we figure out that, wait a second, if you go back far enough, every tradition or setup or system was created at one point before also. Everything was new at one point. So why not question it? Why not assess it and figure out if there's a better way to move forward? Not tearing everything down, but assessing and re-engineering for what may be a better way moving forward. I, I think. You're you're going to really like this conversation with Aaron. So I'll get out of the way and enjoy this conversation with Aaron Dignan. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show Aaron Dignan. Aaron, welcome to
1: the show. Thank you for having me.
0: So uh, first and foremost, I know you're here to talk about a brand new book that you created. It's called Brave New Work and then i love that there's a post it that says are you ready to reinvent your organization uh, that is probably one of the most unique ways of doing the subtitle on a book that i've seen yet so <laughs> well done um but the ready I, I i one it almost makes me feel like it's the n- title of a, a rock band or an emo band or something uh or <laughs> or i don't know maybe a street gang but what is the ready for real
1: yeah no it's funny actually we we did end up doing some music the other day um we uh i mean essentially the ready is this is a community of people around the world that are helping organizations kind of move away from bureaucracy to something more adaptive and human uh, in terms of the way they work
0: I love it yeah b- bureaucracy in all its forms uh and, and that's kind of where you go, starting off you know intro in the book and and talking about the progress that we've made or should be making. We're we're really adhering to a lot of old systems or structures or assumptions. Like this is one of those, shake up your whole organization, you, you reinvent it, like you say in the subtitle. And, and I love that you're saying organization because then that means that that can apply to any group of people that are moving towards the same outcome or purpose.
1: Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, w- I would have said institution if I could have <laughs> to be even more broad. But yeah, whenever people come to, together to, you know, do their great work or solve problems, uh, you know, they have to figure out how they do it. What will be the norms? What will be the assumptions? How will we make decisions? How will we move move the work forward? Um, and my experience has been that, you know, the vast majority of organizations all around the world, I mean, I've done this work as far away as Manila. um, they were, all, they were all sort of playing from the same playbook, and that playbook was written on a factory floor 100 plus years ago um, when the problem was, you know, how do we get 40,000 boots for the Napoleonic Wars in a week when all we have are these, you know, craftsmen and artisans? Um, and so, you know, we, we really changed the way we... Produce things for consistency, for quality, for reliability, for scale. In in many cases, so that you know, uh, robber barons could have more dominant position in the market. <laughs> um, but uh, but we did we did invent a new way of working back then, and it spread really fast because it did provide some some real benefits. And the fact that you can buy a box of cornflakes today uh, at any grocery store in the country or in the world for that matter, and it tastes roughly the same, and it won't kill you. Um, you know, that is a sort of a minor miracle. And it's thanks to that, that revolution that came towards, you know, the end of the uh, 20th century. But I do think that, you know, now the world has has changed yet again, there's, there's incredibly dynamic markets, there are people with much higher expectations of what they want from work, it's not just a paycheck, we want meaning, we want purpose, we want, you know, a sense of growth and and uh, camaraderie, etc. Um And the problems we face are so much more intractable. I mean, we're talking about, I mean, look at politics, look at climate change, look at markets that are moving so fast, look at economic inequality. There's a lot of things going on that um, a command and control, predict and control, kind of hierarchical, siloed, you know, built for a slow world way of working um, just cannot handle. And so now we're now we're stuck with the choice of do we kind of double down on that and, and really watch the whole thing. Come tumbling down, or or do we move on?
0: I I can't help but think of this word often used in you know tech blogs. It's this word disruptor, and then it's all also often Mm -hmm. followed by this phrase the Uber of dot dot dot. And Mm -hmm. because there's such a you know an example, regardless of their politics or their you know the way they run their company, whether you like that or not, I don't know, whatever. But uh, that that what they did. In a particular space, started to become an example of that disruption. But I'd like to say that what you're doing, instead of using the word uh, disruption in this book, you're talking about it similarly. It, it's 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 related, but it's it's more questioning the assumptions.
1: That's right. Yeah. In fact, I mean, a lot of what I think we're trying to do is accelerate a more peaceful transition, right? So instead of it be very disruptive, right? Because if we continue on the path we're on, we're going to have big winners and big losers and destabilized systems and things that lead to systemic failure at a pretty large scale, I believe. Um, and so that's disruptive. Actually, it's actually disruptive to stay with the status quo, in my view. We, you know, we have, um, a lot to, a lot to gain by changing. And so the question is, you know, if we, if we can change those assumptions about the nature of people, the nature of work, the nature of markets, the nature of organizations, if we can get that right, um, then yeah, it will change things in a sort of quote unquote disruptive way, but it'll actually, I think, be a little bit more fluid. And I think more people will get to participate in a way that, um you know, that feels equitable and exciting.
0: I love the fact that you use the word reinvent, because in my mind, that's taking what's come before, analyzing it and studying it and taking it to a reengineering, like, you know, it, because there was a reason we did the things we used to do. And, totally you know, we don't want to just blow everything up and then scrap it, you know, and and then move on to building something without taking into account the experience and the lessons learned up till this point.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's this idea called Chesterton's Fence that is a good Wikipedia rabbit hole if you're ever bored, which is basically, you know, you come upon a fence um, that is no longer surrounding anything. And the the initial instinct is to look at it and be like, that's not doing anything. Whoever built that was an idiot. I'm just going to tear it down. <laughs> As opposed to assuming like, okay, someone took the time and energy to build this thing. There was once a reason. If I can understand the reason, then I can tear it down safely, right? Then I know what you know what it's meant to do. Um, and so you know, and, and I think that I mean, imagine someone kind of. Um, you know, going back and looking at, well, how did we get to the way we've uh, the way we work and what what serves us now and what doesn't? I think that's really what what I'm advocating for. You
0: talk a lot about the way
1: we used to work in the
0: book with the factories and things like that. I mean, how has that progression from, you know, I mean, we've seen recent progressions to remote working and all of that from the you know cubicle farms but you know that timeline do a quick history of that timeline as to to kind of give an example as to why even right now we need to be paying attention and being part of the the solution that you're proposing
1: yeah well i mean the first thing i would say is that i i think we um we're changing the wrapping paper on the way we work, but we're not really changing the, the essence of it, right? So, you know, yeah, if you work remotely now you're doing it through a screen, but you're still treating each other the same way, organizing in roughly the same way, you know, delegating the same way, deciding the same way. So it's really um you know, technology is accelerating a pattern, um, but it, it isn't necessarily changing the pattern, which I think is interesting. The the promise, of course, was that it would, right? We you know, we talked in the early days of the internet like it was gonna be this great, you know, democratic force, but I don't think that's the case. Um, I mean the simple through line here is that we started in an artisanal economy, a merchant economy where uh, craftsmen worked on uh, the you know their trade, right? You were a shoemaker, a cordwainer, uh etc. um you had masters and apprentices, that was the main structural model, so people that kind of knew uh, knew as much as they could know about it and then the people they were teaching. Um and and we were very functionally integrated and what I mean by that is if you were the shoemaker you did customer service, you did design, you did supply chain, you swept the floor, you locked up at night. I mean, you did everything. And so you really understood the business you know, soup to nuts. The problem, of course, is that a cord wainer, a shoemaker can only make um one pair of shoes a day on average back then. So uh, you're you're sort of limited on scale. Um, and of course, if you need a lot of shoes, like I mentioned for, you know, for war or for a global economy, et cetera, um, for a brand that you want to grow, then, um, having more master craftsmen doesn't really help because they still can only make one pair per, per person per day. So you can have 500 in a, in a factory that doesn't change anything. And so what happened was, um, you know, a bunch of thinkers around the world, uh, you know, Henri Fayol in, in France, um, Frederick Winslow Taylor here and, and many others started doing um, a, a kind of study, uh, a, a scientific study of work. And they called it, uh, they've sort of called it scientific management, which was, you know, how do we do this differently? And the answers that they came up with were things like separating the thinking from the doing so that managers would be analyzing and thinking and deciding how to improve the process and workers would be doing and executing and hitting a quota. Um, you know, everything was measured with a stopwatch. Everything was tracked and studied. Everyone had a, a number they had to hit or, or they would be asked to leave, et cetera. Um, and so it kind of stripped all the craft out of it. And frankly, all the leverage uh, of, of the shoemaker, because now, you know, if your job is to thread the shoelace through the eyelets and then do another one and another one and another one, if you get sick or you need a raise, um, you know, we'll just grab someone off the street. Like there's really nothing irreplaceable about you anymore. Um, the good news, of course, is that, you know, things like the, you know, the, the line, the assembly line that, you know, people like Ford and others um, created, Worked really well. I mean, it took the you know the time to make a car down by you know six x or ten x. Um, it it really changed the the quality and consistency of the work. I mean, it did a lot of really good things. Um, but it also created a pattern, I think, and a way of thinking about risk about prediction, about control, um, the kind of Gantt chartification of everything that um, that metastasized over the next hundred years and and suddenly you know we look up now and we're realizing you know in places where it really has no business happening you know in creative work in knowledge work in in places where we're supposed to be um, disrupting the status quo, We've got all these ideas of predict and control, and so we still have managers thinking that they should do all the deciding and thinking. We have people thinking that they should comply and do what they're told. We have um, structures that are heavily centralized around specific functions like legal and IT and HR, etc. cetera. Um, and the the net effect is that it's quite immobilizing. Um, and in fact, we're seeing this. I mean, corporate longevity is down. You know, in the late 50s, early 60s. It would If you were on the S&P 500, you'd be on it for 60 years. Now it's closer to 15 or 12. Um, it's go, you know, continuing to go down, so it's harder to stay big for longer. Um, we have return on assets going down, so it's much harder to make profit with the things we already have as businesses, just across the economy. Uh, so somehow we're less effective, even amidst all this work. Um, productivity growth is down, like crazy, down over the last you know couple decades, and in some months and some quarters in some industries, it's even been negative, which is a baffling statistic because we have. Slack and Skype and Zoom and Google and all these things that should be making us infinitely, I mean, we have mobile devices in our pockets stronger than the computers that took us to the moon. So you would think that productivity would be growing, but in fact, it's not. And the reason is that this bureaucracy has become kind of wrapped around the handle. And so all these indicators are telling us that we need to get out of our own way. We need to think differently about the problem. Um, And so that's where we sit now. And there are obviously um, fringe firms out there that I discovered when working on the book and in doing the work that I do that are are solving these problems differently.
0: I couldn't help but think when you in the book talk about the organization operating system, I couldn't help but think of being a cyborg. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and here's why. Because one, right there in the words operating system, I'm thinking, okay, computer. So technological, you know, digital technology parts. But then organization, uh, I got the word organism, which is a living, breathing thing made mm. up of, you know, cells of people in this instance. And so I put those together in the Venn diagram. And in the middle, I got cyborg so
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's funny i mean the main criticism of course of using a term like operating system is that it feels um evocative of machines which is the exact opposite of what i'm advocating for but what i've found is two things are true one people really understand that idea that uh, that you know complex and complicated systems both have at their core a kind of set of basic rules assumptions coding um, whether it's DNA in a living system or whether it's and an in, instinct or whether it's um, you know the assumptions and principles and practices in an organization so the metaphor at least for the kind of uninitiated seems to really work because it's like oh yeah this is the underlying stuff that we never think and talk about um, and that's really where we need to go I use it you know, as a term of art very literally like operating system the system by which we operate that yeah. you know it, in that and that includes a lot of um, very living things. Uh, so that's, you know, that's the way I like to think about it, but the OS is, um, is incredibly instructive in terms of how we're going to end up working and what the culture is going to feel like and all that kind of stuff. The
0: word system is also used in organisms, you know, circulatory system, and I I forget the rest, respiratory system, all those things, those are, (laughs) those are organic. So it doesn't have to be, you know, digital technology, uh, heavy with with the the way people hear it. And, and the thing is, is that you're talking about rethinking things from uh, the level down to being I've heard you call it uh, and being an evolutionary organization, something that evolves, something that's continuously uh, in motion towards improvement.
1: Yeah, the, the reality is that most organizations and most teams are so um, overwhelmed with the workload and so kind of in a rut with the norms and the patterns of how they work, That they move from project to project and effort to effort and, you know, product to product, but they very rarely stop and change the way they work. Um, it's not really something we have permission to do often. It's certainly not something that we think about. There's not a normal rhythm around it. And so, um, you know, it, it, I think that that idea of being evolutionary is really just about being in flux. It's about accepting that not only are we working in the business, but on the business. And that's kind of a new, Identity for a team, for a leader to be, you know, wearing two hats essentially.
0: I like to throw this statement around once in a while, and it's this that uh every tradition was new at one point, like the, <laughs> the eight hour workday and the five hour work week or the five day work week, I should say those were new at one point now those are like almost in th- those are in question as well, I think, right.
1: Well, I mean, they certainly should be. I think uh, we're, um, you know, it's something that most people don't spend. I mean, that's my point, right? Like, how many people actually stop and say, should our company work five days out of the seven? Like, is that a legitimate question that businesses ask? And the reality is 99.5% don't ask that question. Um, And the ones that do are obviously, you know, thinking differently. They're doing, um, you know, four day weeks, they're, they're changing up when and how people work, or they're just giving people the the autonomy to say, you know, work on what you want, when you want, where you want, um, you know, provided that we're achieving our purpose, um, and your, you know, reputation with your colleagues is strong, what does it matter? So I think that, I think that that's very interesting. The, the reality is that there are two, at least two, there's really a spectrum, but there are two big, uh, polarities about how we solve problems at work. And I talk about it in the book as um, using a metaphor of an intersection. So the, you know, two roads cross, the problem is, the problem space says, how do we solve, you know, maximum throughput without causing accidents, basically. Um, and the lighted intersection, of course, takes the approach of, let's assume that everybody is untrustworthy. Let's tell them what to do. Let's demand compliance. The lights will signal when to go and how to go. We have to think of everything, of course. So there's going to be flashing lights and arrows and you know signs and all this kind of stuff. And then, of course, in order to make this apparatus work, we're going to need a central control station and lots of people running that and algorithms and you know electricity and all this kind of stuff. Um, and that's the vast. I mean, that's the most popular solution for sure in the states. There are you know thousands times more of those than almost almost anything else. Yeah. Um, then you have the roundabout. The roundabout is a is a you know, solution to that problem with a different take. It has a different quote unquote operating system. It assumes that people are trustworthy, that they need to use judgment, that they can be responsible, that they can be present in in the problem. Um, and that, uh, you know, we can control all the complexity of this issue with just a couple simple rules. So go with the flow of traffic and give the right away to the people in the circle. And so, those are two different approaches, two different operating systems, effectively, two different sets of assumptions about people and the problem. Um, And the reality is that, you know, while we have a thousand times more lighted intersections, the roundabout is safer, infinitely safer on fatality collisions, higher throughput, um, cheaper to build and maintain, and works much, much better when the power goes out. You know, and yet we're more comfortable in the lighted scenario. So, to me, when we think about work, that's the metaphor. We've got a lot of signal controlled policies processes structures the way we budget the way we build teams the way we develop people and promote people and pay people and every other thing is all about like where's the red light where's the green light who has permission who has authority and we need more roundabouts we need more solutions to these problems that ask the question of like what are the minimum amounts of policy and and constraint that we can put in place that allow for adults to use judgment and solve problems together.
0: I love this. And I still hesitate sometimes at roundabouts because I'm just not used to it because we've, you know, because in here in the States, like that's just the minute, like there's hardly any of them anywhere.
1: Totally yeah yeah there, it's one thousand one hundred and thirteen to one yes uh, <laughs>
0: so. I go south about an hour and then I start to hit them, and it's like, okay uh i'm gonna trust you're not go okay, cool, and then my turn and you know, and it's like the anyways I, I, you get what it's anybody who's ever done a roundabout and and sorry to all the European folks who are so much used to this and you know <laughs> you're like you guys are crazy um it's indicative the the roundabout and the hesitancy there and the um, not necessarily knowing if you've got permission to go because right. you're used to being told what to do or yeah. having that that structure in place that, you know, a lot of people are listening to this and they're saying, well, one, either I am a solo business, I am me by myself, which I still think you could question how you do things individually, uh, but two, or I run a small business or I'm in a bigger organization and I am not in leadership, so I don't really have a say.
1: I think a couple things are true. So one of the things we've learned in doing this work is that um, when you first ask someone whether they're a solopreneur or or part of a team or you know someone at the edge, um, you know what are the things that are holding you back? What are, I always ask, what's stopping you from doing the best work of your life? Um, and they'll you know they'll tell you. Everybody has a list, right? We have meetings to prepare for meetings. I don't have the information I need. My boss is you know micromanaging me. There's you know fifteen hundred things they could say. Um, and then when we ask, well, what can you do something about? The first gut reaction is none of it, right? It's just like, I can't control anything. I'm not in a position of power, or I'm working alone. So, you know, these are all things that are out of my control. But when we sort of ask, we do like kind of the five whys and dig in a little deeper, we actually find that you can control quite a lot about your way of working. I mean, certainly if you're alone, you are sort of you know your own uh, best advocate and worst enemy in the sense that like the way you structure your day the way you build workflow the tools that you use the you know the people you seek counsel and advice from like you have control over all of that and so i think you can spend a lot of time thinking about How you solve these problems and and you can save, you know, the questions about structure or authority and things like that for, you know, for a later time when, when they're more relevant. But you can spend a lot of time thinking about workflow and information flow and advice and how you make decisions and how you structure your time and how you limit your work in progress and all these things. And then for the team member who doesn't have a lot of authority in the current system, you know, the same is true, right? Like a team at the very edge of an organization can control how they meet and how they communicate and how they decide together and how they treat each other and what are the norms and expectations of that team. And they can actually do a lot of work. And then they can ask these tough questions of leadership. You know, the next forum that you have, the next town hall, the next moment where you get everyone together you can ask the question, hey, what's stopping us from doing the best work of our lives? You know, and see what is that what does that trigger for people? Or you can suggest a tension that you're feeling and ask, well, you know, why can't we do an experiment to address this? You know, what would be safe to try? Um, and and I find that often it's just that it's not being said, and there's a little bit of the squeaky wheel getting the grease where um if you have an idea for an experiment and you have attention that's holding you back and you can articulate that soundly, um, at least now, the vast majority of leaders I run into are equally frustrated. They sense the bureaucracy. They sense the, you know, the limitations of the current way, and they're looking for a way out actively. They're just not necessarily always talking about it. So, um, you know, yes, there are the kind of control freaks and micromanagers and things like that out there that don't wanna that don't wanna just you know flip the table over. But even in conversation with those folks, just saying, you know, hey. If the problem requires a little bit more testing and learning and more adaptation, and it can't really be driven from the center, is this the kind of control that you actually want? We know you want control, but could we trade one kind for another? Um, and can we start to look at some of these other approaches that are actually giving people better outcomes? Because, you know, that's ultimately what everybody wants.
0: Yeah, it's almost like look, looking at it for from a circumstantial or a, um, I don't know, a, a situational Problem solving uh, approach where, hey, pick one thing that feels like it's traffic lights where you're getting stop and go and it's the throughput is just not there and see if there's a way to propose um, still allowing control. To the people that are in charge, if, if it's not you, uh, but proposing a way, even, even collaborating with other people that are also stuck in traffic, so to speak. Um, totally. Figuring out a way to turn it into a roundabout and say, hey, let's instill in this instance, when this comes up in, in this circumstance, um, trust. So that we all can start to just trust each other in the throughput. We get unclogged. There's no bottleneck there anymore, in other
1: words. Yeah. And we can just solve the problem in a different way. A classic example I always hit on is like, you know, if travel spend is too high, you can take the lighted approach of a travel freeze, automatically requiring manager approvals for all travel, having a, you know, key travel partner where we can't book the airlines we like anymore, you know, all these shenanigans um or you can just say what if we just transparently publish everyone's travel spend once a week on the internet um so everyone else in the organization can see like where the spend is what it is um what would that do right and and of course the first blush reaction is like well that won't fix it but the reality is I've seen it work and, and the way it works is it creates interesting social pressure. It creates conversations. It creates learning where some people who have hacked the system and figured out how to book, you know, really effective deals and, and, you know, benefits are sharing those, that knowledge. Um, people that are flagrantly abusing the system are kind of outed, like a light is shown on that and the, and they have to deal with the reputational consequences and the questions that come with that. And often that means, Changing their behavior, so there's there are ways to solve these problems more simply that also um, treat us as adults in a way, and also just increase the number, the amount of information that's flowing. So now we all understand the travel spend better, and we understand where it's happening and why it's happening, and we can dialogue about that, and we can understand like you know w- what is going on and why is it going on, as opposed to just treating everyone like children and saying like we're gonna shut this down, and we don't trust you to make good decisions, and you know on behalf of the business. Um, you know, I think that there are just so many examples of that. So I want
0: to talk a little bit here about the components that make up the OS because it feels like in that instance we were just talking about with the traffic lights and the roundabout and how to approach you know, s- specific problems. We're, we're hitting on a number of the, a number of the aspects. There's 12 of them. I don't know that we're going to name all 12 of them here. In fact, I've got like four <laughs> that I think are the most important in terms of this show. Uh, two of which being workflow and information, yep. but yeah. I want to go there after we talk about honestly the first one, purpose and then following that up with authority, because I feel like that one also kind of touches on what we were just talking about.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so you know, the the way we derived these is was actually just looking at organizations that work differently that have kind of ditched bureaucracy and asking the question, "What do you do differently?" And the answers kind of got grouped into these spaces. So these are the these seem to be the areas where work is in flux. Um, purpose is one where you know certainly in the past, purpose was just profit, right? Like there was a little bit of an of a you know take on business that the business of business is business to. Sort of paraphrase yeah. Milton Friedman. Um I think the you know what we have now is obviously a lot more awareness that meaning and intent and kind of, you know, as Steve Jobs said, like putting a, a dent in the universe um is important and, and motivating to people and helps people connect to to the organization and even as an attractor. Um but what we're missing and and that I think is part of the next transition is how does that help us make decisions? How does that show up at every level of the organization? How do we reconcile our personal purposes and intents with the organizations? How do we kind of dialogue around the way the purpose of different groups and teams and projects um, uh, you know, matches up to or doesn't match up to the, you know, the, the purpose overall? Um, I think there's an instinct and purpose to either put a banner on the wall that is some grandiose statement and then leave it at that, or um, to take that statement and then try to unpack it precisely into every team and part of the organization as if it's going to all fit together beautifully, um, when in reality, you know, organizations are are dynamic and organic and you know as soon as you have three or four teams you're going to have slightly different interpretations of what the purpose is the purpose itself is obviously always slightly morphing as the membership of the organization changes so um so i think thinking about it more organically i like to argue just for more dialogue for more conversation like what is your personal purpose how does that map to this team's what is this team's how does that you know interact with the organizations and if there are deltas or differences let's explore them like are they telling us a story about where we need to go or are they telling us a story about needing to realign? And let's let's use judgment to evaluate that together rather than, you know, me, the boss telling you, like, your purpose doesn't match my purpose, so <laughs> you got to change it. Because, um, of course, you know, like, imagine all the things we miss when we think that top down. So, like, would AWS have ever happened at Amazon? Um, if, if the attitude was, well, if this doesn't perfectly map with our current strategic objectives and our current de- definition of purpose, um, you know, a bookseller online is never going to create infrastructure systems. <laughs> so, um, so that I think we have to just like, uh, hold it lightly, but, but constantly be tuning it.
0: I mean, it's not the be all end all or the like starting, I mean, it's the starting point, but again, it's going to be in flux. It's, it's organic. It's going to as, like you said, membership, people come in, people exit at different points, um, different people share diff- or have different roles, different, um, you know, different teams are formed and then disbanded because maybe they aren't needed anymore, things like that, that the purposes are going to shift. And even, you know, even the quote, you know, what we would think normally as a mission statement of right. the top level of the organization as a whole can change. Or at least take it a
1: different form. Or it can be reinterpreted. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly it, and and that's okay. Actually, that's a good thing to have that space. I think you want just enough vector, just enough sort of um, clarity about where we're heading that people can can move in a direction that there's some sense of coordination. Because obviously, without that, we're all moving in every other direction, and it, it's not necessarily, you know. Productive, but if it's too focused, if it's too narrow, then we miss out on all the opportunities that occur on the path there. So,
0: yeah, one of the other components actually—it's—it's it's the next one. It's authority, and that one, uh, along with probably at least two others, uh, kind of really spell out the uh, again the metaphor of the traffic lights versus the roundabout, where you know authority is basically okay. Who has the power and who makes the decisions, and how is that? Uh, shared or disseminated throughout the organization
1: really is just how do we you know how do we use and share power and how do we make decisions right so once you do have power how do you make decisions and the irony of course of the of the current system is it tells us a story of all right well the way we distribute authority is look up right so (laughs) people that are in in charge uh, are in charge and and the higher up you go the more that's true um the the irony, of course, is that the way we actually make decisions in most traditional systems is quite laissez-faire. It's kind of like whatever the leader thinks, whatever they, whatever their intuition tells them. There's not a lot of decision science going on um, in most of the organizations around the world that, that you can kind of pop into and visit. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of theater of of decision science, but mostly people are just shooting from the hip. Um, and so, you know, in the midst of this desire for control and risk avoidance, we're actually quite unclear about how to do that. I think the alternative, of course, is to say, all right, first of all, if the, if the world is fast changing, if the market is fast changing, if there's a lot going on at the edge, then we need to organize our authority in such a way that the people who are coming in contact with reality are able to react to it, are able to respond to it, are able to adapt. Um, and so that means giving teams more authority, more, more power to make choices and trusting them to do that. Um, and it means saying, you know, we need to look at the way we make decisions and the nature of different kinds of decisions and make sure that we have the right heuristics and the right methods and the right approaches. So I often talk about it like a decision stack. So, you know, below a certain level of risk, everyone can make certain decisions that, you know, at W.L. Gore, they call that the waterline, right? You get a hole in the boat below the waterline, you sink, but above the you're fine. You can patch it when you get back to shore. So anything above the waterline should be fine. Um, you know, the classic example at something like Ritz-Carlton is anybody at the company can spend $200 a day to make a guest happy, right? That's sort of like an above the waterline decision, right? That they have. So uh, my goal is, of course, to get as much above the waterline as possible, um, as, that is safe to put above the waterline. And then, and then the next step might be, uh, you know, decisions that require advice. So we say, um, you know, you can make this decision. You have this right. But there's a requirement that before you make a decision of this magnitude, you seek the counsel of people that have been there before or decided this before or will be affected by your decision. So you can still do whatever you want after you hear that advice, but you got to go get it. You got to hear it out. You got to process it. And that, you know, we're use, we're asking you to use your judgment after you've sought that advice. And then the third tier might be this decision is so important that we actually want multiple perspectives weighing in. And so we're going to have different people consent to this decision. We're not going to have consensus. We're not going to all love it and think it's the best possible thing but we're going to all agree that it's safe to try at, at the board level or a management level or a, or a cross functional team level or whatever the case may be and so you kind of have these different tiers of the decision stack with different approaches and you make those really explicit and everybody knows you know and, and also you know ask them to use judgment do you feel like the thing you're about to do is going to put us at you know in, in sort of an irreversible risk scenario yes cool. Don't make that decision alone. You know, is this this just like the color of the napkins at the next gala? That is a totally reversible decision. That is safe to try. That is totally like, let's make sure that the person planning the party can just do that. And I think for leaders, they have to start asking themselves that question. Is the decision I'm about to intervene on reversible or irreversible? Is it safe to try or not safe to try, and how am I defining that, and how much can I push myself to a place of discomfort where we're right at the edge of it's safe to try? I think because that's the place where we have the most speed adaptivity learning development happening in the organization.
0: Two of the other pieces that we take a lot of time discussing on this show that are kind of hand in hand with purpose and authority here as as far as I see them is is workflow as well as information. And I guess I'll throw a third one in there, resources, because if you think about it, resources, it's how we invest our time and money. Well... Investing your time, uh, time management, productivity, like that all goes hand in hand. Workflow obviously is analyzing the workflow and then information. You know, again, if we go back to authority and authority being, um, you know, who has the power and then we hear, well, information is power. That's also part of it. (laughs) So, and, and and that's, so let's see. So now in total, we have mentioned of the OS purpose, authority, resources, workflow, and information. And that's five of them. And there are 12. So there you go. There's a lot more.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you can keep digging for a long time. I mean, obviously, we spend, you know, months and years sometimes with organizations uh, digging into all this stuff. I think the important thing, of course, is just to start where you are. So if you, you know, if the tensions you're feeling are tensions around workflow, um and maybe you're having trouble limiting your work in progress or you have a, a lack of prioritization or you have you know you don't have a sense of you know why the structure of the organization doesn't match the way you actually create value for customers those sorts of things then start there and if you have a problem with oh you know we spend 45 hours a week in meetings then start there and if you have a problem of we don't have enough information to make good decisions then start there i think just you know start where you are Um, and don't worry too much about the kind of overwhelming scale of it. Um, but do think for a moment about the connections between these spaces, right? So if you roll into the office on Monday and you're like, I heard the podcast with Aaron and I'm going to empower everybody, but you forget to share information, then people will be empowered. They won't have information. They'll make bad decisions and you'll turn around and be like, that didn't make sense. That didn't work. Like maybe I shouldn't have trusted everyone. When the reality is, can't make good decisions if you don't have good information. So we got to think about the connections between these spaces and how they're going to tug on each other uh, as we do this work.
0: Yeah, I have I said this in pre recording, and uh, I'm going to say it now, again, that uh, looking at the OS and seeing all the components, I was like, Oh, Gosh, like I know that there's episodes that fall in this one, and then others that fall in this one, and it was kind of like a map of oh, I can kind of tally up and see where I'm light on in terms of episodes and topics. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> if, so if is, any, it,
1: yeah, go It's ahead. helpful for for organizing. I, w- the one like caveat I'll put out there is it's not meant to be mutually exclusive or comprehensively exhaustive. So they overlap, they interact, they tug on each other, and so yeah. it's fun to categorize. But it's also fun to say, like, I just did an episode where we touched five of them, you know, that's right. I think that's totally interesting.
0: Yeah. So, uh, again, if anybody's interested uh, in seeing where some of the topics for the show will start to come from, or, or you know, the the mind mapping in some senses of, of the forward and future episodes map, uh, pick up the book, Brave New Work. Uh, Aaron. This has been great. I can't wait to get this in the hands of a lot more organizations. And is there any (laughs) kind of, I mean, is there anywhere you want to specifically send people to, to pick it up, like any bonus material or like stuff they can take a look at to push them over the edge to grab it?
1: Yeah, well at least at this moment um, if you go to brave dot that's kind of where we're building the community and the conversation you can find places to buy the book there we're also um, doing a workshop series rather than a, a book tour um, so we are visiting 11 US cities to, to actually dig into this work together so if you um, if you order some books and and kind of submit your receipt on the site you can get into those workshops uh, so that's kind of a fun thing for at least the next uh, few months that's going on and then um, you know the readycom is where where we actually have the team that's doing the work. So if you're curious about that, take a look at theready.com. Perfect.
0: All right. I will link up to all of that in the show notes for this episode. And Aaron, it's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Yeah, likewise. See you soon.
0: Well, that wraps up another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. Thanks again to Aaron Dignan for stopping by and talking with me about his new book, Brave New Work, I hope that this made you think. Ultimately, sometimes there's not easy-to-grasp practical walk-away stuff, although I think... Uh, in part, some of the identifying certain areas in the organization that you are a part of that can be turned from stop and go lights into a roundabout is a very practical takeaway. But again, the homework needs to be done, right? So again, this is one of those episodes where I'm really proud of the fact that we continue to move that conversation forward, about thinking about where we are now, where we've come from, where we want to go, and how we can reorganize, re-engineer, restructure the operating system of our organizations, whatever form that may be, however big or small you may be, and whatever your goals are. But to rethink what it is you're doing, why it is you're doing it that way, and really, truly getting down to the nuts and bolts of figuring out how to change our organizations for the better. So I hope you enjoyed this. If you did, or if you know of somebody who needs to hear this, I would love for you to do me the favor of sharing this episode, which you can do by going to beyondthetodolist.com slash 263. There you'll see the share buttons where you can hit go. You can hit share. Share this episode out with somebody that you know needs to hear it that uh, would be interested in this conversation. And thank you so much for doing that. And I will see you next episode.